Ladies and gentlemen of the company, this is your half hour call. You have 30 minutes, ladies and gents. That's 30 minutes. It's the half. Welcome. Welcome to the stage podcast in association with Charcoal Blue. This is very exciting. We're doing it every month from now on. And we're going to have reviews, interviews, weird bits, fun things, and Lynn Gardner. And it's going to be a massive celebration of the theatrical landscape of the country in beautiful pod-shaped form. Each month we'll have a different deputy stage manager doing the calls at the beginning and the end of the podcast. This month they're courtesy of Sereni at the Almeida Theatre in London. So thank you, Sereni. There's going to be a big review bit where Lynn and I, plus a range of other critics and non-critics, talk about a major opening that month and stage critic Fergus Morgan begged and begged me for his own little slot on the podcast so I've let him do a bit that we're going to call Fergus Has a Go where he does his very best in a slightly unsung aspect of theatre so this month he's getting an expert voice coaching session from the RSC's head of voice Kate Godfrey Lynn will be talking to me and to Andrzej Lukowski stage columnist and Time Out's theatre editor of course about Anthony and Cleopatra which is opening at the National Theatre with Ray Fiennes and Sophie Ocanido and this month we had the stage debut awards ceremony which was just so full of love and support and a brilliant mix of established talent and bright new shiny people ready to storm the industry so there'll be a little flashback montage of that right now it's my birthday i am working in front of all these people i am beyond excited nancy beaten to death and i started spanking myself across the stage i remember looking out to a sea of 200 people with three teeth many posh actors playing all the roles and that's got to stop michael grandage's performance is as preposterous as the plastic ivy on the three-cornered set i'm dead and this is what i hear I won't keep you any longer because this just looks depressing. (laughs) A little montage from the stage debut was just to give a flavour of the the love and support and passion in the room. So the idea is to celebrate people making their debut. That is actors, designers, directors, composers, everything. Kush Jumbo was presenting and she was so good. Really funny and natural and just seemed to buy into the whole spirit of the thing, which was lovely. One of the winners was Amara Okariki, who I saw in Les Mis a couple of months ago. And you know how Cosette is actually quite a boring part? She sort of, well, she mopes and pines for Marius and she's she's locked in the creepy mansion by Jean Valjean at the end of Act One. And grown-up Cosette only gets one decent song, which she has to share with mopey old Marius and scream queen Eponine. I'm gonna scream, I'm gonna want them here. But Amara just brought this role completely to life. It was incredible. This actress not only made this iconic role her own, but in doing so made history as the first actress of colour to play Cosette in the West End's longest-running musical, Les Miserables. The winner is Amara Okereke. It's really hard to get your foot in the door in the first place. I feel like people always forget the long-running musicals. Now they're just kind of landmarks in London um, and no longer shows in, the, in a way. Another winner was actually Sharan, who played the lead part in the National Youth Theatre's production of The Reluctant Fundamentalist, a book by Mohsin Hamid. I really loved that show. He managed to find all this maturity and complexity in his character's relationship to America. There was sort of pride and ambivalence and disdain. And there was a particularly outstanding scene at JFK Airport after the September 11th attacks, where the main character, Changez, stands 
arms outstretched and stripped down and each of the white cast members in succession pats him down thoroughly um, and there was just this silence and stillness to it and this clash between him trying to muster his dignity but there not being any dignity there it was amazing and that was directed by Prisanna Poinaraja as well who's just great but it's mad because actually it's only now going into his second year of drama school so it felt like a proper celebration of the beginning of someone's very very promising career the winner is Akshay Sharan I, I don't really know at the moment. I'm still just trying to take it in because, like I said earlier, it's the first time that I've been to like an award show like this, and to be recognised is just very flattering, and I feel very, very grateful. So thank you so much. So watch out for them and all the other winners, and you can find the full list of winners actually on the stage website. There are a few starry faces there too, actually. I mean, in that montage, there was Adrian Lester and Jodie Pranger and Kush Jumbo and Michael Grandage and Aidan Turner. And there was also Phila Deloy, director of Mamma Mia and Tina, the Tina Turner musical. What's Lloyd got to do? Get to do with it? Anyway, she's simply the best, isn't she? Picture the scene. It's 11pm. Anthony and Cleopatra has just come down at the National Theatre and Lynn and Andrzej Lukowski and I have nipped to a bench on the South Bank looking out over the Thames to talk Shakespeare. Specifically, Simon Godwin's production of Antony and Cleopatra with Sophie Ocanido and Ray Fiennes. And there was one particular aspect of the production that was on our minds because Cleopatra gets bitten by an asp. So, Lynn, you've just told me, and this seems quite problematic for this play, that you don't like snakes. Well, yeah, but I just kind of tried to convince myself that the National Theatre Puppetry Department had really outdone themselves. But I think actually it was real, wasn't it? I think it was a real snake. Yeah, I mean, it was a very pretty snake. Yeah, it was very it was bright and orange and colourful. Yeah. It looked like a corn snake to me. Is that oh, genuinely a thing? I see reptiles with my son these days and uh, yeah. it looked like a corn snake to me. Really? Right. Yeah. Are they brightly coloured? Yeah. But not dangerous? I guess not. Do, were you, do you have an aversion to snakes to the extent that when you saw it on stage you were a bit kind of... I don't have a serious aversion to them, but I did worry a moment about what would happen if she put it down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And would it crawl into it the audience? It off, yeah. Yes, and would we become hysterical? So obviously this is when Cleopatra dies and she manages to kill herself with a snake in the basket of figs. And one of her uh, attendants, Charmian, handed it out through the gate at the back. But there was a big shadow on the back wall of the handler taking the snake and trying to sort of wrestle with it. But anyway, Andrew, who did you prefer? Did you prefer Anthony or Cleopatra? And also, did you prefer Sophie or Canido or Ray Fiennes? I thought they both had their places in it, but in a sense I think it would be disingenuous to pretend that Sophie Ocanedo uh, didn't sort of entirely dominate, but it has a much bigger role. As a rule, productions of Anthony and Cleopatra, quite rarely for Shakespeare, tend to be somewhat predicated on a, the biggest celebrity being Cleopatra, although oh, yeah. that's not always the case. Um, Patrick Stewart springs to mind. Um, as Cleopatra. As Anthony. But it was announced a very long time ago, like something like 18 months ago, but it was happening with Ray Fiennes. Um, and so Fiocanida was only a relatively late addition to it. But um, I thought she was... She be- was a lot better. She was... You know, I thought what, I thought what Ray Fiennes was doing was quite modest and quite interesting. His, his Anthony was kind of very 
sort of damaged and, and washed up, but it kind of felt yeah. like a sort of minor, quite a minor take, whereas I thought yeah, she was yeah. exceptional. I thought it started well for him because he had a kind of like um, sort of Brits Abroad look, didn't he, where he was in like an open print shirt yeah, and he was a holding a beer. Yeah, yeah, and, and a bit sort of ruddy, like he'd been in the yeah. sun too long, yeah. and he was just enjoying himself in Egypt. But... It didn't develop in the same way that it, Sophie no. or Canelo did, really. I, I mean, I really thought that there were three people in this relationship, which was Anthony, Cleopatra and the Olivier Revolve. Yeah. 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 And yeah, sometimes yeah. I thought it was doing most of the acting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that, the Revolve was amazing because they used it properly, like the whole kind of way you can split the set in half and then lower one half and swap yeah. it out for the other one and, yeah. and then it's just a giant sort of segment of a submarine the came submarine up. came yeah. up yeah. quite exciting I mean there are 37 locations in this play that's wow. uh, including I think the submarine that Shakespeare probably didn't originally <laughs> write in is that not in the script <laughs> but I doesn't say it's not a submarine no, <laughs> precisely but I think that the Revolve absolutely you know was used in a way that allowed the kind of fluidity and the swiftness of yeah. those and locations. But, you know, I think there's something... I don't know. I sort of felt quite aware that there was a lot of fine acting yeah. going on. Yeah. And in the end, for me, I just didn't care. Uh... Well, there was that slightly tricky thing at the end where when Ray Fiennes was dying, there was quite a lot of laughter... And it's different. I wasn't quite sure whether he was doing that deliberately or not. Well, it is. It's quite funny though the way he takes a long time to die, and there's quite a lot of humour towards the end. I mean, it's 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 a tricky one. I mean, because he um, makes aims of stabbing himself, and then he goes, "Oh, I'm not dead." Yeah, <laughs> and I don't think I don't think the laughter it got on press night would have been um, unprecedented because that that bit is kind of funny, and I suppose ideally you you want everyone to be in floods of tears, but that didn't seem to be what they were going for. But I also think there's something about the fact that all the way through she has this kind of quite sly humour yeah. uh, and the way that she undercuts things and uh, as though she is kind of aware of the parts that they are playing yeah. and yet the way he played it was much more like this rumpled mm. figure perhaps sort of you know getting a second wind a kind of second chance and the reason I think we laughed at that moment is that suddenly it's as though he has a moment of self-awareness that previously we haven't really seen yeah that's true and it's the kind of comic sadness of it as well yeah there was another moment I really liked with him actually which was very near the beginning uh, when he hears about his wife's death and sort of it just for a moment it was just beautifully underplayed but that kind of look of sort of almost of regret I yes. thought but I thought there was just too much of him coming to the front yeah and sort of looking into the middle distance yes yeah. and declaiming yeah yeah and there was a lot of kind of throaty noises as yeah. well I agree but I think at the same time it was there was something unflashy about what he did that I, I thought was quite agreeable considering he was the big name or, or, or yeah. I, I felt that way as well I think he kind of did his own thing in quite a kind of functional way that let sort of Sophie Ocanido sort of you know dominate more or less. Yeah, because I kept on watching this and uh, I felt all the time in terms of the direction with Simon and Godwin that you know that we were in 
really safe hands yeah. and mm. that you know it looked really handsome all the time I mean a bit of a fashion parade yeah. uh, but, but again that kind of fits with that idea of something you know uh, this is a show about showiness about yeah. how you present yourself as a, as a king or a warrior or a queen but I, I did keep on wondering about you know if you're going to put something in modern dress it seems to me it was put in modern dress, but it didn't feel any more contemporary than if it had yeah. been in an It didn't Edith, have a Elizabeth concept Dub- behind that no. one. It feels yeah. like there's an inheritance of, of the Nicholas Heitner era, probably, in the Olivier, that Shakespeare is done in modern dress here, mm. but it didn't particularly interrogate but, it in a particularly modern way. But the costumes were amazing. I thought they looked beautiful. Uh, Cleopatra had one particularly that had that kind of like cloak over the top. Do you remember that one? Oh, what, the green? The, the yeah. green velvet yeah. with the sort of... No, oh, no, and there was that one, which yeah, was great, like yeah. a Harry Potter cloak yeah, with, yeah, the, yeah. with the spangly bits on it. I, I thought it was a reference maybe to... Ray Fiennes and what, know, Voldemort, Voldemort. <laughs> 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 yeah they nicked it from the costume store at Warner Brothers but no there was another one where it was like a kind of big cream gown and it had a kind of cowl over the top oh, yes. oh yeah, yeah when yeah. she was she was being sort of penitent uh, after, after yeah, she'd, yeah. she'd um, fled from the sea battle yeah, yeah. that looked really good yeah. but yeah I, I, yeah I think as you said it didn't quite interrogate yeah it. but it's kind of quite interesting because I sort of in some ways it felt like a show that you know that you could go to see it as my mum would have said to go and see the frocks yeah yeah (laughs) and it was very clear I mean it's three and a half hours and it felt like it but it was very clear it was always I think that's what you get with Simon Goblin I mean if you think for the longest time you had Heitner kind of giving Nicholas Heitner giving these really interesting kind of modern dress reimaginings of or, or finding a new message from from these plays you sort of thought that Shakespeare and Olivier was kind of infallible and then there was a terrible Macbeth earlier this year that was just a sort of really big misstep and um, and I think um, uh, whatever you might criticise about this it did it did feel like you were in very safe hands all the way through and it was yeah. it was rollicking entertainment I mean yeah. and it, it used the stage really well part of that was the designs was it Hildegard Hilde 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 yeah, yeah. and there were some amazing bits like I liked the bit where so this submarine which had come up through the revolve then went back down and then suddenly the massive Olivier stage is just empty um, and it was it seemed to be playing with the with the size of that stage in quite interesting ways because yeah. it went from being very built up to very empty and I love the difference between Egypt and Rome as well where Egypt was quite um, like a bad Egyptian hotel exactly <laughs> yeah. exactly with a with the put oh god the water feature yes. the water feature was a good it was good and, it and was then good. brilliantly used exactly yes. yeah. because I was you as soon as you see a water feature the first thing you hope is that someone falls yeah. in it yeah and yeah it happened um, and then Rome was like a kind of contemporary art gallery wasn't it it was kind of like clean lines and art on plinths and yeah. very stylish but it was really nice yeah no no I think it was clever I mean it felt like quite a conscious we are fill, filling the Olivier stage yeah uh, yeah but nonetheless I would say that it worked it managed yeah. to do it yeah exactly yeah the fighting, the fight scenes, because there was a rollicking great fight scene, which you, Anja, you were a bit dismissive of, but I liked. Uh, I think sometimes it can be a, a mistake to show rather than tell when you're kind of trying to transpose a ancient Roman battle into a 
20th century format and there was just a, a, a lot of people kind of ducking behind pillars and then jumping out and bloodlessly yeah. stabbing each other and it really kind of reminded me of 70s sci-fi slash fantasy um, and um, <laughs> what slightly wobbly yeah a bit a bit wobbly and 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 sort of not necessarily particularly convincing but um, the pillars and stuff were moving and there were big flashbangs I didn't I didn't mind it I just thought they could probably have it would probably have been just as effective to have not done it yeah I mean I just thought it was a little bit of overkill yeah. I mean as, <laughs> as, a, as a rule uh, I find fight sequences in Shakespeare Jules work uh, and, and the rest is generally better reported. I wish they'd done the Battle of Actium, you know, fully on stage. Just had a bit more of a water feature. Feature, yeah. yeah. Proper naval battle. Yeah, well, if you've you know, got submarine, why couldn't you have done... And you've got well, exactly. the... Uh, yeah, why couldn't you have done that? Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, what overall impressions then? What do you reckon? Listen, I didn't love it. Yeah. But I quite liked it. I think yeah. I admired it, actually, more than I probably really liked it. Yeah. I thought it was good entertainment. I suppose it's worth maybe saying that it's notionally Simon Godwin's, well, probably his last Shakespeare play of a national theatre before he goes off to uh, direct Shakespeare in Washington, D.C. for a living. So I don't know if he'll exactly be leaving a kind of huge hole there, but I think, you know, having seen their failure at Beth early this year, he's, he's a safe pair of hands who knows how to entertain with Shakespeare. The only other thing I wrote down, I think, was Saucy Madam. I just thought it was a strange thing to hear in the play. He called Cleopatra a saucy madam. Which gets called considerably worse, doesn't she? <laughs> she does, yeah. Antony and Cleopatra there, which runs at the National Theatre until the 19th of January, and it's being broadcast on NT Live on the 6th of December. Now, what makes the perfect performance venue? Is it good seats, great views of the stage, the bar, a queue for the toilet that doesn't take you out the front door... In truth, every venue is unique, from a rehearsal room to a West End house to a large-scale presenting venue or even an arena. Undertaking the design or renovation can be a challenge, but at Charcoal Blue, that's all they do. Charcoal Blue are the leading theatre, acoustic and digital design consultancy that have designed, renovated, tweaked and polished more than 150 performance and presentation spaces, both here and abroad, over the past 14 years. From a six-person mobile podcasting studio, oh, that sounds handy, to a new home for the London Symphony Orchestra, their team of experienced musical and theatre professionals innovate at any scale. With studios in London, Bristol and Glasgow, speak to them today about how they can help you realise your ambitions for your space. You can find them at charcoalblue.com or follow them on Twitter or Instagram at charcoalbluetc. Good. Now, you may remember Fergus Morgan from such stage podcasts as the one in Edinburgh. Well, he enjoyed himself and the adulation that came with it so much that he asked for his own slot. And I said, well, yes, in theory, but what can you do? Do you have any talents? And he said, no, I don't have any talents. And I said, well, why don't you go out and try some different jobs and see if you can find out what your vocation is? So that's what he did. And in this first episode, Fergus joins the absolutely divine head of voice at the RSC, Kate Godfrey, for a pro one-on-one -on -one vocal coaching session Prepare yourself for mangled Shakespeare and dodgy accents. My name is Kate Godfrey. I'm the Head of Voice and Text and Actors Support here at the Royal Shakespeare Company. I would say my remit is that I'm responsible for the vocal health of all the actors in the company, the clarity of the shows, the clarity of the delivery, um, audibility. I try to see each actor at least for 45 minutes as a sort of um, what I call a kind of vocal 
MOT. Mm. And a big part of your job, I read, is going through, you know, Shakespeare back to front, presumably, and going through the text itself, talking to actors about what meanings are in there, what hidden sort of That's right. resonances are around That's there as right. well. Yeah, we, we often, a, a rehearsal period will begin with about two weeks of sitting around the table and working out what the meaning is of, of each line. And what about in terms of the actor's lifestyle? Do you take help them advise them on what they should be eating, drinking, doing, that sort of thing? Yeah, I think it's more um, exercising it. Vocal warm-up is a huge part of the job. And it really involves a lot of, you know, I suppose, a lot of breathing, stretching, humming through the range, articulation. Can we have a go at one of those? Yeah. No. Would that be all right? <laughs> sure. Okay, yeah, let's, let's go for it. So, so we will be standing up. Yeah, we can stand one. up for this one. Okay. First, we're going to just stretch your ribs, really. Okay. So have a, a stretch arm. So I'm pushing my arms up, interlocked above my head. That's right. And then we're going over to one side. Oh, I don't know if I bend like that. Yeah, don't go too far then if that feels a bit much. But what we're really trying to do is, is not be flexible, sort of bendy in the body, but just Im- imagining that your ribs are expanding, sort of like a fan. Okay. Just breathe in and breathe out. You may feel the ribs just slightly moving as you breathe. Yep, in and out. Yeah. And keep that hand on your ribs there as you come out of the stretch. Because actually sometimes you feel more movement when you come out of the stretch. And you may feel one side's just that little bit more woken up than the other. Yeah, yeah, I can feel that down my my right side. It's feeling pretty... Yeah. And to look at you, one one side is a little bit more sort of lengthened than the other. Am I standing better now as well? Um, Well, uh, yeah, I suppose so. (laughs) Uh, We'll balance you up now. So we're going up the other way. So the same thing, we're just feeling the expansion of the ribs as you breathe in and then we're going to breathe out and come out of the stretch we'll do a little I know, chew for the face this is um, easing the jaw okay. and opening up the, um, the back of your throat so we're just having a really good chewing we're sort of gurning and yeah. moving our mouths in all sorts of directions exactly. I hope I haven't got anything stuck in my teeth <laughs> no you're fine <laughs> um, and now we're just going to twitch the nose a little bit and twitch the cheeks. And that has the sensation perhaps of you wanting to kind of yawn or feel a kind of yawny space in there. Yeah, my mouth feels quite cavernous. Yeah. The breath exercises are really just taking the breath in and releasing out on a long S for as long as it's okay. comfortable. Okay. So if you breathe as low as you can, maybe have your hand down where your belly button is okay. or even lower. And imagine that breath going right down. It doesn't really go that far, but we're imagining it going right down into your belly. Breathing in, breathing out on a long S. Two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen. 17, 18, excellent. I ran out of breath then. Yeah, very good. I think, you know, 25 is a good working capacity, so that's very good. Ah, close enough. And also you're taking that breath nice and low. That's what we're really aiming for, is to get the the breath into um, a low position in the body because then you have much more control over it and it fuels the voice. Breath is like petrol for a car. 
it's fueling the voice. I would just do a little bit of humming and zizzing, humming just, and zizzing. just to warm up okay. the voice. So this is really just a zzz or a v or a zzz or a v, yeah, mixture of all, just zzz. Of that. Okay, there's a lot of that going on. And um, and that's just um, getting your vocal folds going. Okay. So we'll just incorporate a little bit of range to that by just going, um, how about if we do um, mm, up and down your range. Very good. I think, I mean, there, I do sort of ta 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 da 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 or ba 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 mama, you know, lip stuff. Different consonant sounds, that sort of thing. ga ga um, some people like to use tongue twisters. I think it's also nice to use a good bit of text. So we have a, a list of good ju- juicy bits of Shakespeare that are quite difficult to get your mouth around. We have a box by the lift in the Royal Shakespeare Theatre. And so the actors can just take a, a warm-up sheet or um, tongue twisters and, and these sort of... Just read through it. Yeah, just read got, through it. you got one ready? Yes. Anthony from Julius Caesar. So I've got Anthony reading the... Uh, he's at the funeral, Caesar's funeral. That's right. Am I right? I mm-hmm. think I'm right. Uh, and it's his Friends Romans Countryman speech. Friends Romans Countryman, lend me your ears. I come to bury Caesar, not to praise him. The evil that men do lives after them. The good is oft interred with their bones. So let it be with Caesar. Lovely. Well done, Fergus. Really? Really nice. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so there's, there's kind of few things there. Interestingly, it starts one syllable, friends. Romans, two syllables. Countrymen, three syllables. So I think you can kind of just enjoy that. Okay. Friends. Romans. Countrymen. Good. Keep going. Lend me your ears. Yeah. I come to bury Caesar, not to praise him. Excellent. I think I have to hear that that D on the end of lend. If you do lend me your ears, we don't really get this rather strange image of lend me your ears. Lend me your ears. Yes. Lend me your ears. Friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears. Mm. I come to bury Caesar, not to praise him. Exactly. And already you see you're starting to balance bury and praise. He's then, in the rest of the speech, going to absolutely praise him. He's going to completely do what he said he wouldn't do. I come to bury Caesar, not to praise him. Not to praise him. Not to praise him. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I wouldn't, I don't like giving actors sort of uh, line readings by sort of telling them exactly how to say them. That's okay, I'm not an actor. But but, um, I suppose that that balancing it, it's all about keeping the audience listening. Okay. Um, How is my pronunciation? Because I've been, I've been told I mumble quite a lot. That was nice, but I, did that feel more than you would normally do? I felt like I was making an effort yeah. to pronounce things properly. Yes. Which I don't always do. <laughs> yes, I would probably have to kind of use the word nag you a little bit if you were in the RST, the Royal Shakespeare Theatre, mm-hmm. simply because it's a big space and an actor speaks a word clearly because they imagine that they, the character, have chosen that word mm. or they've chosen that metaphor or that image. So the difference between reading lines and 
acting and yeah. the speaking lines and acting. Yeah, that, that, that you fully own the word. How is my stance for, for projecting my voice? It's good, yes, it's, it's good. I'm just looking at you sideways, so I can see that maybe you're slightly leaning back. I'm leaning back too yeah. much, I need to lean forward. So if you sort of think about coming right up through your body and even coming a little bit forward, maybe you just feel there's a tiny bit more weight in your toes. Okay. I'm tilting as, forward slightly. Yeah, but not without sort of, not coming off your heels. Yeah, it feels like I'm about to tip forward. Yeah. <laughs> I'm yeah. like I'm going to crash head first into your desk. <laughs> yes, but actually you're upright. And that's a better for sort of projecting my voice, getting that's, my breath in. And that's out, right, the breath can get down lower. Okay, I'm going to have another crack at yeah. the, the Anthony speech. Mm-hmm. Friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears. I come to bury Caesar, not to praise him. The evil that men do lives after them. The good is oft interred with their bones. So let it be with Caesar. Very nice. Oft interred is quite a tricky phrase, isn't it? I'm not and sure. And actually, for it to fit in with the iambic pentameter, this sort of, you know, de dum de dum de dum de dum de dum mm-hmm. beat of of um, Shakespeare, we probably would say interred. Interred. Or perhaps fully speak interred so that it takes up the time that interred would Mm. take. It sort of depends on your style and whether you want to make it ultra-modern or whether you're wanting to keep to the iambic beat. Mm. The evil that men do lives after them. The good is oft interred with their bones. So let it be with Caesar. Excellent. And then the other thing is you have evil versus good. So you have what we call ah, yeah. antithesis, um, opposites. That's a huge part of understanding Shakespeare. I think it's the main thing that I would say to the actors. Really play those opposites. Okay, shall I give it one more go? Mm. Okay. Friends, Roman... Nah, that, was, that wasn't good. I'll turn that again. Friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears... I come to bury Caesar not to praise him. The evil that men do lives after them. The good is often interred with their bones. So let it be with Caesar. Yeah, yeah, very nice. Better than it was at the beginning? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, nice. just do um, the good is oft interred with their bones. So you really, sort of really chew those words around. There's so much to remember. <laughs> yes. <laughs> the good the good is oft interred with their bones. Good, very nice. Now that's maybe a bit too much. That was a bit too much. Although, bit hammy. maybe not when you're in a really big space, you see. We're in a small office. But if you go back to something more normal, you may have kept a little bit of that muscularity. The good is oft interred with their bones. That's nice, yeah. There's one more thing I yeah. want to have a quick go sure. at, which is trying it in an accent. Okay. Just for a bit of fun. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you have a particular accent you want to help me try. One that might be useful for this, Fergus, is um, American. Because Americans sometimes feel they have to do an English accent when they're playing Shakespeare. But as John Barton always pointed out to them, that the, the, the accent that Shakespeare spoke in was much nearer to their accent than what I'm speaking now, which is sort of received pronunciation. We talk about placement. So it's sort of literally, it's sort of placed in a different space in, in your mouth. So what we're going to do is, is really bring the sound right back into the back of your mouth. How would you do that? <laughs> and feel that everything is going really wide. Everything 
everything's going really wide. Very nice. Yeah. Can you can you imagine? This might not work for you, but can you imagine? You can kind of see the back of your tongue. The back of my tongue. Yeah. Yeah. And that your tongue. This is a famous note that a dialect coach, Charmian Hall used to say that the tongue is wide like a pancake the tongue is wide like a pancake very good very good if you think of the sides of your tongue being kind of fluid the sides of my tongue being kind of fluid that's really (laughs) good yeah no that sounds very good the sides of my tongue the sides of my tongue you see if i go back to my sort of english everything goes much sort of narrower that's very very english yes so slightly old-fashioned RP. Now I'm just going to move that into a different setting and everything goes wide. And uh, here I am back in the States. Um, (laughs) And I'm back here with you. Yeah. So if you do friends, Romans, countrymen, maybe just those three words, I'm going to ask you to just not move your top lip. Keep that top lip really frozen. I mean, they they talk about the British having a, a stiff upper lip, but actually... I think the Americans often, you see them on the TV, and they don't really move that top lip. Friends, Romans, countrymen. I went a bit southern there at the end. Lend me your ears. Mm-hmm. I come to bury Caesar. Not to praise <laughs> Very good son. <laughs> the evil... Ah, oh, see, I've completely lost it now. Yeah. The good is aft interred with their bones. It's very good, Fergus. Yeah. So... Let it be with Caesar. Sure. So let it be with Caesar. <laughs> I think we're going to have to leave it there, Kate Godfrey. Sure. I've no idea where I've gone now. <laughs> sounds like Forrest Gump. It sounds a bit like Forrest Gump. Mm, but thank good. you, thank you very much. My pleasure. Ladies and gentlemen, this is your beginner's call. Your call, please, Mr. Bano. Stand by, please, stage management and all technical staff. This is your beginner's call. Thank you. Has it been half an hour and a bit already? Right, more of everything in a month's time. Thank you for listening. If you've got any thoughts or comments or whatever, you can find me on Twitter, email me tim at thestage.co.uk. Don't forget, you can find loads and loads of stuff on thestage.co.uk. Also, if you enjoyed listening, please do subscribe and leave a review on iTunes because it helps others find this podcast. That's all for now. Until next month, thank you and bye-bye. <laughs>